Before we begin, before we get deep into the weeds, before we get into the podcast, yeah, it's that time of the year again. It is Patreon time. You know, there are some benighted, fantastic people out there, John, who actually pay us for this gig. I know, and I'm genuinely, eternally grateful to them. But you know why they pay us? Not only do you get ad-free, lots of people don't like the ads, Yeah, but more importantly, you get to ask me questions every week. You get my Trinity courses. You get the audio of the Trinity courses. You get the visual of the Trinity yeah. courses. You get the book list of the Trinity courses. The notes. You get the notes. You get the books. You get the whole shebang. So if you want a really proper, deeply, as they say, immersive experience in the Dave McWilliams <laughs> yeah. podcast, sign up now in December for your annual membership on Patreon. You'll get a 15% discount if you sign up before the 1st of January. So you know what? You know those people who listen to this show and you think, what do I get them for a present? There you go. Get Dave McWilliams for a present. <laughs> Dave McWilliams on a plate. On a plate. <laughs> so it is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Happy Christmas. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How you doing there? It is podcast time. We're going to get straight into it today because we're going to talk about the re-emergence of an unwanted guest at the party, inflation. <laughs> For the last four <laughs> decades, say, John. John Davis. <laughs> it's, it's, actually, it's Christmas time. Around Christmas time, you can never get rid of him. But, but he I lingers, brought a bottle, Mark. He lingers at the end, and you're all going to bed and saying, "Who's that?" Then John's like, "One more, just one more." And another thing, I was going to tell you, I'm saying, "I'm saying, man, it is time to leave." The unwanted friend at the party is not John Davis this time around. It is the bowed inflation, right? Ah, yeah. The bowed inflation basically disappeared from the Western world. And I mean, I'm talking Ireland, Britain, Germany, America, all this part of the world, largely in the 1980s, late 70s, 1980s, has not come back. And I was far too sanguine on inflation. I thought, you know what? This ain't going to come back in any real way. Our supply chains are wide. The global economy is flexible, etc. I hadn't really figured out as much as I should have done the impact of the pandemic on, I know, what did I say my report card, John? Must try harder. <laughs> Must try harder. Back in the class for you. Back in the class, exactly. Buccal Donna. Back in the class, right? But I hadn't really 
appreciated just how much it could come back so quickly. And of course, the trigger mechanism was the war in Ukraine. Yeah. But there's lots of other stuff going yeah, yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the reason then... There's no one thing. There's, there's no the, one thing. There's a, there's a complex... It's, it's, it's that idea that the global economy is so complex that the final price that you buy, let's say, a phone or a laptop or a car or a TV or whatever at are, you know, a bag of spuds, mm, right? Yeah. Is the final combination of thousands of inputs, right? And if at any stage the flexible, lubricated machine gets stuck, I hadn't quite appreciated that the downside of 40 years of very low inflation was a hypersensitive supply chain that if it became clogged up in any one place, you'd have these massive ramifications. That's the first thing. Well, in fairness, I don't think you're the only one. No, but I would have been on what's called, I don't know if you heard this, team transitory. Yes, indeed. Right, yes. so that's a two big things in economics. So I thought, you know, inflation will spike up, then it will moderate over time, and the global economy will kick in, and we're not going to go into a 1970 situation where you have wages rising rapidly, where you have people's real income falling and therefore have to rise and you're going to get embedded in the system. Mm. I didn't think the trade union movement was quite as strong. I didn't think that actual the competition in the economy was quite as weak. Now what we're seeing, you see it in the UK with the strikes everything this week in the UK, that basically inflation is dramatically eroding people's real incomes and this is causing people to say, hold on a second, I want wage increases and governments are actually focusing on the wage increases, which is naturally pissing off the people because they're actually just trying to get their wages sure. back. Yeah. But, but you know, you said there you didn't realise that how strong the trade union movement is. But it's, No, no, it's, it's not as strong as the 70s. So sure, but, but, it, but it's inflation that actually gives it its, its impetus. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. absolutely. So, so it was just dormant as opposed to... It was dormant and kicked around. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the... the, the the history of industrial relations over the last 30 years has been as inflation has fallen, the major, major leading price has been real wages falling. Yeah. Not so much in this country, but in many other countries. And as real wages fall, workers get screwed. Yeah. That's the basic idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, as you're seeing in England in particular, the workers have said, from the nurses to the train drivers, we've had enough of this. Yeah. Right? We need to get a little bit of the pie back. Okay, Mac, let me just understand inflation a little bit more. I know there's a a lot of terms thrown around, as you said, team transitory and all the rest. But what does it mean when they they talk about inflation becoming embedded or ingrained? What what does that actually mean? So just let me go back. There's the monetarist view of inflation, which Mm. is that Milton Friedman, the high priest of this particular discipline, said that inflation is always and ever a monetary phenomenon. So his idea was, if a central bank prints more money, then there is the demand for money. The spillover will be an increase in inflation. Now that seems to feel logical, except the problem is that since 2008, that has been so profoundly wrong as to be laughable. So when the Fed started to print money- Because of inequality. No, 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 because what I'll, I'll explain to what it's when the Fed started to print money and to, to increase what they call QE, mm. a whole 
shrill part of the economics profession and the financial markets were saying hyperinflation is only around the corner. What we're doing now is what the Germans did in the Reich Bank in 1923 and we were going to have cascading hyperinflation, yeah. right? They predicted bond yields would go through the roof uh, and ultimately that inflation would emerge. Now, amaze it's been laughably wrong in the sense that it has, it has not happened to such an extent that you have to look somewhere else. And right. the reason it hasn't happened is because what drives inflation in an open, globally trading economy is so much more than just the amount of money that is actually printed in the economy. Such That's as? the first time. So, the, so now you've got to look at supply chains. Right. right. So, for example, when China opened up, half of the global labour supply came on stream. So by that I mean... The global labour supply doubled yeah. when China yeah. emerged, right? Yeah. That had a profound effect, not just on wages, but on prices across the board, everywhere, right? So that's happening. You have what they call just-in-time technology. Mm. So you don't have any stock. So when I first did, this is kind of a bit nerdy now, when I first did GDP forecasting in Ireland, there was a variable called stocks, which was basically the shit you couldn't understand, and you threw yeah. everything in it at the end of the equation, right? And basically what I was saying is that, so for, you know, when British Leyland went on strike in the 1970s, what you would have is the British Leyland used to see photographs. I remember when I was a kid of inflation in the UK, and they would have literally three or four fields full of unsold cars, Right? Yeah, remember, yeah, remember, yeah, remember yeah, those yeah. photos, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that was before just-in-time technology. And we also had uh, uh, butter mountains and butter wine mountain. leagues. Exactly. And, uh, so yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, same yeah, idea. Yeah. So that you build up stocks, <laughs> wow, right? I just, yeah, yeah. I just had a flashback to but, the 80s but there. John, yeah. this is all economics, yeah. right? You, this yeah. is all how it works. So you'd have these butter mountains and wild leagues. And as I said, you know, literally 10 or 11 football fields full of cars, right? Mm, yeah. So what would happen is a factory would produce and produce and produce and produce they'd build up stocks and then they'd sell that inventory down into the market, right? Mm. And they'd take their two weeks' holidays in July. That's how the whole thing worked, right? <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the Japanese changed all that in the 1960s by introducing just-in-time technology in their supply chains. And the just-in-time technology was that they could keep their suppliers on such a tight leash that rather than build up inventories which the firm has to pay for. Because if you think of inventories, it's stock that you have that you haven't sold. Mm. So there's a mismatch between revenue and costs, right? Yeah. So they would say, the Japanese said, no, well, let's not do this. We will actually match our revenue or our cost with this just-in-time supply. This is largely what destroyed the American car industry. Right. Okay. Yeah, this is yeah. what Toyota and Honda and, and all those Japanese cars. There was risks cars. attached to that as well. But, but the Japanese have figured out that basically yeah. the way in which you control prices is you control costs, mm. right? And that say, seems to seem logical now. Yeah. But in the 70s and 80s, this was still like a eureka moment, yeah, yeah. right? So Ryanair would be the great example. The way in which you control airline inflation is you control the costs of production. Mm. So the reason that people worry that inflation becomes embedded is there's a very simple other type of inflation, which is called cost-push inflation, where your costs of input go through the roof, which is exactly what's happening now with Ukraine. Yeah. And this pushes up the price of everything. Why? Because most firms base their entire business model on a fixed profit margin, right? So if you base your entire business model on a fixed profit margin, right? So you say, no matter what happens, we're going to make 10% profit. And your cost of inputs goes up, 
You have to either increase prices or you reduce profits. So this is what's happening at yeah. the moment. So there's all sorts of stuff going in. Okay, so I, I understand that, Mac. And, uh... Yeah, so, the, so, the, so it's not monetary. It's actually to do with the real economy and all these various things are happening. The pandemic has shocked the economy. Then after that, you've got the war. All these things yeah. are coming through and they're spilling over into major prices. There's another term, actually, about the, the kind of shock inflation. Yeah. And, you know, the, people talk about washing it through the system. So here's the question. How long does it take ah, yeah, well, to just... wash through a system? And what are the mechanisms to either speed that process up or to deal with that? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do, John. I'm going to set up a very interesting young economist, German economist, called Isabella Weber. Or right. Weber. And she has in recent months, been drafted into the German government to give them a new take on what to do. Because she was sitting there, she's an American, she's a German economist based in America, and she was saying, look, if we wait for this thing to wash through, of course what's going to happen is people's inflation expectations are going to increase. So it could take months and years. Mm. So rather than wait for it to wash through and you just put up with it, she's saying, no, 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 no. What we've got to do is we've got to go in and intervene. And that has led this week, in the first week of January of 2023, to the Germans announcing quite a different policy to the rest of the world. So I okay. think why, what they're saying is we are not going to stand idly by and allow inflation to come through. Now, maybe this is because Germany's got this legacy of hyperinflation, all that sort of stuff. But let's go and talk to Isabella. Let's go to the States, talk to Isabella, see what she said, and that will probably answer your question. And I'd say many more. So let's go to the States. Great. Now, one woman that I have been looking to try and get to come to Kilkenomics for the last six months, it was almost like one of those sort of special ops movements that we were trying to get Isabella Weber to come to Kilkenomics for a variety of reasons, but one of which was that I asked somebody to name me the best young female economists in the world, women economists doing their thing, because you know the thing about economics is it's very, very male-dominated. It has always been a little bit of extreme maleness going on. And at Kilkenomics, we said, oh, hold on a second, we can't be having that. So I was told, and this is the introduction, Isabella, I was told there is one kick-ass female economist from Germany called Isabella Weber, and she has just published a book. And the book is How China Escaped Shock Therapy. And it's an extraordinary book about how China managed to avoid the disastrous shock therapy that the rest of the post-Soviet world experienced and were humiliated by in the early 1990s, late 1980s. And now we finally tracked her down. She's on the line from Massachusetts, where she is. Isabella, how are you? I am fine. Thanks so much, David, for having me. And I'm embarrassed that I didn't make it to K-Economics, but I will be there next year. <laughs> Perfect. OK, well, that's the commitment live on air. You can't back down now. OK, it's the first weekend of November. Now, Isabel, I want to ask you quickly about China. And the reason I want to ask you about China is that's where you came to my attention through this book, Shock Therapy. The thesis is that China managed not to go through the hyperinflation in particular, that destroyed much of, for example, Eastern Germany, Poland, Middle Europe, Soviet Union, post-Soviet Union, etc. How did they do it? Yeah, so basically what happened when countries ran into hyperinflation in the transition from a plant to a market economy was that they were left with 
neither plan nor market because the planned economy was kind of being destroyed and the market didn't work if you had hyperinflation. I mean, to be sure, East Germany did not have hyperinflation, but at some, I mean, several of the, the former socialist countries did have these episodes of hyperinflation that left them in this like, very, very difficult spot. Now, what China did was that it pursued the so-called dual-track pricing system, which was based on a logic of keeping control of the most important prices and the most important part of the production in the most important sectors, while letting the market emerge at the margins and then introducing that market dynamic into the old system. So that in some sense, if with shock therapy, some countries were left with neither market nor plan, China kind of had plan and market at the same time, which brought its own kind of challenges, which allowed them to have um, sufficient control over the economy and prices to avoid proper hyperinflation. In 1980. Eight, they actually did come close to a very rapid price liberalization where the reactions to the announcement of that rapid price liberalizations were already enough to kind of create a spurt of inflation that then created this political backlash, which resulted in a retaking control kind of mode, which is then an important context to what ultimately happened in 89 and the protests and the, the crackdown and all of that. So China, to be sure, China was very successful economically, but it of course also and brought its own kind of political challenges, um, uh, and it came at, at a at a huge price. Cost. At a huge price. Now, the reason we want to talk about China and market reforms is not to go back there, but it's because had we been talking this time last year, I'd been like, yeah, inflation, Isabella, you know, chill out, relax, not, no, not a problem. And even if it is, we have the tools at our disposal to control it. Now, the story of 2022, the economic story, has been the re-emergence of inflation and the and in a virulent way and in a way in which people would never have expected. Explain to me, and I want to ask you about as being from the German perspective, because Germany has had this hyperinflation and has this legacy, has this inheritance. What is so wrong with inflation, number one, and why is it so hard to get under control? Yeah. I mean, inflation is always extremely redistributary. Some people win, other people lose. So this means that it pretty much immediately creates enormous political tension and social tension. Um, it also creates a situation where the basic coordinating mechanism of a capitalist economy, that is the market, ends up becoming less predictable than it used to be. Not that it ever was perfectly predictable, but it becomes even less predictable than it is with a, a stable price environment, which then has all sorts of repercussions for the ways in which the economy works. This is especially the case if inflation really gets out of hand. And I guess, thirdly, we can say that if inflation is redistributory and it comes with these intense struggles, then it raises all sorts of pretty fundamental questions about the ways in which an economy is being organized. Um, so in the current context, we have, of course, seen this profit explosion, which then raises the question of whether it is just and acceptable that corporations are making record profits in the middle of a pandemic and war um, in Europe. Let's focus on that. I want to focus on that because this is something that economists are so loath to talk about, which is, is there endemic price gouging across the board for firms who are taking advantage of the fact that they can actually increase prices? Yeah, so I think 
we can go back to 2021 to think about that question. Um, in 2021, we were in a situation where we were transitioning. I mean, we as in people in Europe and the US um, were transitioning out of a shutdown economy where the state had intervened in ways that were pretty far ranging, basically telling um, people who could go to work and who could not go to work, which business had to shut down, which business did not have to shut down and so on, which is a very, very large um, intervention in the workings of, of the economy, which then resulted in all sorts of bottlenecks as kind of the, if you think of the economy as a clockwork where everything is a kind of more or less timed, especially if you think about um, global just-in-time supply chain networks, then once like something gets off in this network, then you get all these cascading effects and delays and so on. So you get all these bottlenecks, which create a completely different kind of environment compared to the environment that we were used to before the pandemic. So for all its faults, the global economy before the pandemic did show quite astounding levels of price stability, despite enormous levels of corporate concentration. And then the question becomes, how can it be that in this situation where suddenly this clockwork is not quite working anymore in the ways in which it has been designed, these same corporations that brought about a pretty long period of astounding price stability can now increase prices in ways that then ends up creating inflation. And I think what happened is that the dynamic of competition changed, where if we are in a pre-pandemic world, and let's say you are Honda and I'm Toyota, and we are both producing cars, and these cars are surprisingly similar in terms of the type of cars, the kind of lines of products that we have and so on, right? And now you decided to raise your prices by 20%, then I would say, oh, wonderful, thank you very much. I can now take your market share because people who previously were driving your cars will now go for my cars, okay, right? Yeah. And I can take your market share because I have this just-in-time production network, which allows me to expand my production just in time and pretty quickly. I have all these buffer capacities in these global networks so that basically it would be extremely irrational for one of these two companies to suddenly increase their prices in such a way. Right? Okay, it would yeah, be I get you. Harming themselves. Yes. So now in the pandemic, this changes because you know that you have supply chain issues and I know that I have supply chain issues and we both know that we have supply chain issues. So if you increase prices, I can no longer simply take your market share because I am struggling sure, to serve I, my you, own I can't customers, get my stuff. right? Exactly. So I have already this large queue with people who have ordered cars with me who have been with my company, I mean, customers of my companies for decades who are a Honda driver um, and whom I cannot service. So in this kind of situation, I will be very hard pressed to attract customers from another company. So in that situation, then the dynamic of competition changes and you can increase prices and I can increase prices and we don't harm each other. And we actually like kind of come into this new type of arrangement where we also might realize, oh, it's actually quite nice to increase prices and make very large profits. And this example now is not specifically on the numbers. Of yeah, the general, it's the general process because what people want to know, they, they ask me, they say, okay, look, we had the pandemic, we've had low inflation for most of people's adult life, actually, at this stage. You know, we're talking since the early 1990s in Europe. So it's a long period of very low inflation, very low interest rates, a sense that the global economy can right itself, can fix itself, that we can always source cheaper stuff elsewhere. Then the panic arrives after the pandemic. 
people are sitting at home, they order stuff online, they think, oh, this should get to me in the next couple of weeks. It doesn't because the companies can't actually source the stuff, particularly even now, still in China, with the, with the still restrictions. And what you see then is companies ratchet up their prices and you're saying they just match each other. Yeah, so you then get this dynamic of kind of auctioning off the inventories that you have rather than just in time production to service whatever demand meets <laughs> your firm. Now, the reasons for bottlenecks are, of course, plenty. It's not just the pandemic. It can also be climate change. I mean, things like rivers drying up and ships no longer being able to navigate on rivers yeah. like the Mississippi River, again, create huge bottlenecks, right? The war in Ukraine, in many ways, created the, the most fundamental and gigantic bottleneck that we have seen in a while in the most essential kind of goods, namely fuel and food, right? So this then has on top of this bottleneck dynamic created this enormous cost push dynamic, which, by the way, already started in 2021. We already had commodity price explosions, food price explosions, and so on. But it, it accelerated with the war so that on top of this ability of firms to suddenly increase prices to their own advantage, you now get these intense cost pressures from the most important input of all inputs, namely energy. Energy. And so tell me, so that, that's where we are. And then the central banks, because we, we, were, we, were, we were talking about the central banks the other day, they're sitting on the sideline. I'll tell you what, uh, Christine Lagarde went on a chat show in Ireland, okay, which shows you the change in where central bankers are. In the old days, your Hans Tietmeyers of this world would never be seen dead outside outside the Bundesbank. Now they're going on Friday night after the watershed chat shows to talk about inflation. And the, the, the chat show host says, well, tell us now, uh, President Lagarde, where does inflation, well, what happened to this inflation? So she, she said live on Irish TV, it came out of nowhere. So that doesn't reassure the people watching. Okay, you need to do better than that. Okay, you need at least a story. Okay, you need a, a sort of analysis. But now that central bankers thought or at least took credit for low inflation for many, many, many years, now what you're saying is in actual fact, the sources of inflation are many, they're various, they're geopolitical, they're climate change, they're strategic, they're war related, etc., etc. Okay, they're post pandemic related. Can central bankers, armed with one weapon, the rate of interest, bring inflation down? Yeah, so basically what we are living through is what I've started to call an age of overlapping emergencies where we have all these emergencies that you just named, right, that bring about intense shocks, shocks like the shocks that we are currently seeing in the energy market, which are shocks that are extremely specific to specific kinds of markets, specific kinds of products, that if these products happen to be ones that are so centrally located in the production network of the economy, have the ability to create these cascading effects, which then means that I think we have to start considering which sectors and products are the ones that are so important that if they are being hit by shocks, they can unleash dynamics that go way beyond this specific market. This then means Give that me an we example need... of that. Give me an example of that. Well, I mean, take the example of the gas market, right? The, yeah. the natural gas market in Europe. I mean, clearly, this market is completely out of balance as a result of the war. And clearly, this has huge implications 
for price stability in Europe and the world, by the way, right? Because if we look at how important gas is for all sorts of kinds of production, then we find that gas is the basic input for things like fertilizers, which then like, again, has huge implications for the price of food, that it's the basic input for all sorts of energy intensive production processes like metals, which are then again, the most basic input for production of machineries. And on top of it, it's also an extremely important consumption good because people need it to heat their to homes, heat the homes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> warm up the water to take a shower, right? Uh, where they have no escape. They can't say like, oh, uh, I actually rather like uh, having an oil heating tomorrow. <laughs> like, that's not how it works, yeah. right? You can't like you reset can't your heating yeah, yeah, system yeah. from... Exactly. So this then means that a shock to the price of gas has huge implications for the economy as a whole. Now, the central bank as an institution has tools to manipulate or alternate the interest rate, but it can do relatively little about the price of gas, right? Exactly. Now, you have an inflation that is intimately related to these explosion, price explosions on the gas and oil markets, and you have a policy regime that has been set up to achieve price stability by alternating the interest rate, then so, so you it's have kind of useless. A mis mismatch, right? Yeah. So this means that basically the European economies and to some extent also the US economy, but of course in the US you do have the strategic oil reserves, which is interesting. You have economies that have been pretty unprepared for these kind of shocks, right? Like it's Absolutely. Been, Completely unprepared. It was the, like, the, what, 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 what? Yeah, we're talking about the price of gas? Wasn't that all coming from Russia? Wasn't that all cheap? Wasn't that cool? We all that. Now people are thinking, where the hell are we going to get this stuff? And at what price? And at what quantity? Yes, exactly. And that has immediate implications for the value of money, if you want so, and for price stability across the value chains I've been trying to lay out, which then has created this huge time lag in reacting to these specific price shocks, right? So inflation kind of kept going. And then eventually, I mean, if I was a central banker and my responsibility was to be in charge of price stability and all that I have is the tool of interest rates, I would probably end up raising interest rates, right? It's a kind of, if you only have a, a, a hammer, <laughs> then everything looks like a nail type of situation, right? Yeah. So because we don't have an alternative set of institutions that can deal with these shocks, and the only one that we have are the central banks, we find ourselves in this almost absurd kind of situation where some of the analyses that are coming out of the most important central banks acknowledges that we have an inflation that is intensely driven by supply shocks. But then nevertheless, so you have an analysis that shows, oh, this is all about shocks and all about the supply side and so on. And then the next step is to say, oh, and we are going to raise interest rates, which is a to bear demand. down on demand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically, so this is a bit we've like, analyzed the problems over here, but we're actually going to give you a solution that's over there, which is kind of unrelated to the original problem in the first place. Yeah, this is a little bit like someone walks into a doctor's office and has a broken arm and the doctor only has ibuprofen and like cannot do anything else. So he said, oh, you have a broken arm. That's really terrible and so on. I'm giving you ibuprofen because that's all you can do, right? So it's like, exactly. yeah. So we have a total mismatch between the analysis of the issues at stake and the cure that we are um, prescribing. Except for the fact that you were discussing this 
last year you were talking about identifying, like the Chinese did to get back to China, they identified crucial, significant prices that they thought we could manage those in order to allow the economy to adjust. And you're talking in the academic world. Then suddenly our world changes and you, Isabella, are flown back to Germany by the German government to advise them on what to do. And you have been profoundly successful. I've been reading the German clippings from the German press about this wunderkind economist. And explain to me how you persuaded the German government to actually look at various price caps at a time when all other governments were saying, it's nothing to do with us. The central bank has to sort it out. It's not our problem. But you said no. And, you're, and your government in Germany listened to you. Yeah, I mean, to be sure, like, I have been arguing together with a colleague, Sebastian Dulin, since February that we need a form of gas price cap. So we have been very specifically focusing on the price of natural gas because already before the war on Ukraine, we could see in the consumer price data and the produ producer price data that the increase in the gas prices was, was so intense that it would already translate into an increase in overall prices would mean that we wouldn't be able to hit the 2% goal by a far yeah, margin. By a far so, margin, yeah. Yeah, so what we were pr proposing was basically a fiscally financed kind of price cap where the idea is that since, as we have mentioned before, people have relatively little ability to adjust to the price of gas as a household. I mean, they do have some scope, like you can say, I'm going to not heat one room, or if you happen to have a large house, you can maybe say, I'm not going to heat one floor. You can say like, I'm going to lower the temperature by a certain amount. I might take showers less frequently and so on. But there is a limit, yeah. right? There's a limit at which you still need gas in your household to kind of have a decent life, right? Yeah. So our proposal was to say that every household and person actually should get a, an allowance of price stabilized gas to kind of take off the pressure of people's uh, sure, budgets, really. Just their, their life and, and their day-to-day -day hassle and their day-to-day -day ability to live a normal life. Yes, anticipating that if this was not going to happen, we would run into a huge cost of living crisis by the fall. Then we have basically been pretty harshly criticized when we introduced this proposal. Um, and as the months went by, more and more people started to kind of either come on to our side or like kind of reinvent our policy in, <laughs> yeah, in well, one, one form or another. You, you, um, know, you know that the golden rule, Isabella, is in the beginning they will ridicule you and then they will threaten you and then they pretend they were on your side all the time. And that's what happens. Yes. So something of that type was happening, <laughs> but with a happy ending in my case, because uh, often it also then ends on a note where um, the person who initially introduced an, an idea does not get any credit at all, right? So I yeah, ended yeah. up being on the winning side of this. Um, when the German government set up an expert commission in the fall, in, in September, to basically design a what they are calling a gas price break. So a break on the price of gas. And here gas is referring to natural gas, not um, gasoline for fueling cars. I was being invited to be on that commission. And uh, about like one week into this commission work, 
the German government came out with this big announcement, the so-called Doppelbombs, saying that they would dedicate 5% of GDP to the efforts of price stabilization measures and setting parameters that basically set the commission on course to work in a direction that was pretty much aligned with what I had been arguing for since February. So then us sitting there in late uh, September, it was already pretty cold in Berlin. Um, we were trying to come up with this specifics of this policy design. And I am emphasizing the, the dimension of time so much here, because if you are dealing with price shocks, ideally you want to react before the price shock percolates through your whole system. Sure, right? exactly. Yeah. Now, because of this, like, time lag in, in, I think even like having a shift in mindset that it's necessary to do something about specific prices, we kind of only get to that point in late September, early October. So the policy that the commission then proposed, which just was enacted um, by German parliament this past week, is one where every household gets an allowance of price capped gas of 80% of their past usage and for the remaining 20% they have to pay whatever the market price is. And for companies it's a similar kind of scheme just that the, the quota of price capped gas is lower, it's 70%. And it's in fact even lower than 70% for the most energy intensive large corporations because of the EU um, guidelines of the amount of subsidies that any individual um, firm can get from the government. And I'm happy to talk about the details of this policy. Uh, I could talk about <laughs> this for probably three hours. So I'll stop here and let you... No, but I mean, what, is interesting <laughs> for us, what is interesting for us is that Germany has adopted a policy on inflation, which is quite, quite distinct from any other country in Europe as a result of agitation by yourself and others, but mainly by yourself, which is really quite an achievement. And before we go, do you now expect the rate of inflation in Germany to moderate quicker. So the rate of consumer prices in Germany to moderate much quicker than the rest of Europe. And as a result, this may be the lead for 2023 and 2024 as to what people do. I mean, to be sure, some other European countries also have introduced price cap policies, right? Like, for example, France was far ahead of Germany in that regard. Even the UK had a gas price cap um, that, that predated the the German one, and there are a number of other examples. So I'm not sure how large the impact will be in comparative terms, but I do think that there will be a significant impact on consumer price inflation, which depend to some extent on how the statistical agencies going to account for this price gap, right? Like how they are going to literally like integrate this into the CPI. But there is this direct impact that will, as a matter of statistics, bring down inflation. Now you could say, oh, Isabella, isn't this a kind of some sort of a magic move where you have the government take on the costs of these high prices and then you kind of lower inflation by just moving these high costs of gas into the government's balance sheets. To some extent, there is, of course, a question of whether we should be doing these kind of fiscally financed well, why not? Price caps. Why um, not? I mean, it, it, if, it, if it brings down inflation, if it stops the seeping of inflation into other prices, if it stops the possibility of a wage price, a price spiral, then a wage spiral, etc. I mean, why not? Exactly. I think the, the point on the wage price spiral is important um, because if 
I mean, with this measure, you basically stabilize the purchasing power of people, right? Yeah. You also lower the inflation expectations. You take off pressure of ECB in this case to increase interest rates, which again would harm demand and would harm workers. So I think it has some very real, very real impacts. That's why I think it's much more than kind of a magical statistical move. Now, on the side of firms, what we are doing with this policy is, of course, to bring down production costs, right? Now, in an ideal world, this lowering of costs would translate into a lowering of prices. And in some sectors, or at least like a decrease in the speed of increase, which yeah. I know is a I know, I, 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 know things, but... <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> so that, that firms that now face stabilized costs would translate that into more stable prices that they are charging their customers. In, in the markets where competition works in a way to ensure that this transmission from cost to price is happening, that is what I would expect to see. In markets where we have this price gouging kind of dynamic that we talked about earlier, there is a question of whether this lowered cost will translate into a lower price because we still have, of course, the physical limits in the supply of gas, right? Which means that um, production, and and in fact, the gas, I should have emphasized this more earlier already, the gas price break in this whole scheme is designed to still have incentives to save gas, right? Because of course we are in a crisis that is not only an inflation crisis, but also a crisis of the physical availability of gas, right? Now, if firms do what we want them to do and reduce their production to some extent to save gas, then the supply will go down. So basically you have kind of a bottleneck that is in some sense even like desired by your policy, um, which could result in similar kind of continued price hikes. But of of course, it will also depend on the demand side and so on. So in an ideal world, and I think overall, the policy that is coming is really good. And I'm very happy it's there. In an ideal world, we might have combined it with a scheme where firms have to pay back the subsidy if they are reaping excess profits so that you kind of have yeah, in the price cap scheme. We could have done that. Yeah, um, it's not part of the law that, that <laughs> will be effective in January. But I think if we had that on top of the price cap, then you would actually have a very powerful tool against um, inflation because both from the production and supply side, as well as from the consumer and household side, you would have um, a mechanism that is um, quite considerably um, bringing down inflation. Well, Isabella Weber, you're the first person who's actually proposed anything constructive on inflation that isn't just, ah, we'll just wait and see and time will tell. So what we're going to do is we're going to be coming back to you in about two or three months' time and we're going to figure out whether or not it's actually working this dynamic because what I, I, what I think is fascinating, it's in the context of the role of government and the attitude of government, the responsibility of government, and, of course, we will see you in Kilkenny in... November 2023. Yes, I'm much looking forward to this. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Bye. Take care. Bye. Interesting stuff there with Isabella there. Well, it's, it's great to hear a young economist getting drafted in yeah. to say to the status quo, to the basically the men in the grey suits, no, 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 no. We can't wait around. Well, it's We've progressive thinking by Germany. It's progressive thinking but by Germany. Let's, let's explore what might happen now as a, as a result of this in 2023. But after this. Grant. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project 
there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So you finished off with kind of inviting her back in a couple of months' time to see where, where we might it be yeah. in a few months' time and how that policy is going to play out. But here's, here's a quick question for you. You know, there's, there's a lot going on in the world. We don't know what's going to happen with the war in Ukraine. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. John, of course we know what's going on. We've got a crystal ball, man. We've got a crystal ball, man. I don't want your predictions, man. We've a crystal ball. We're not bad at this. We're not bad at this game. Go on. But, but things like, I mean, just recently, just last week, China has downgraded COVID to a COVID cold I know, now. I know, I know. It's going to ease supply chains, hopefully, and all that kind of stuff. What kind of implications is that? Is that going to have on global? Imagine inflation? what we're having, right? We're, we're having a tightening of monetary policy, mm. right? So interest rates are going up. We are having a tightening of monetary policy because exchange rates in those countries are rising. So this is all going to bear down on the demand side of the economy, but it's the supply side of the economy where the problems are coming from, yeah. right? So therefore, we're entirely in the lap of the gods of capacity, global capacity. Right. So in terms of global capacity, the first thing is what happens with the war in Ukraine? OK, if there is a ceasefire, we're in a totally different world. Now, interestingly, energy prices are falling quite rapidly. Right. Because the world is factoring in yeah. a recession next yeah, yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's always the case that recession next year is the one that actually bears down on prices. I think there might not be a recession next year. I think we could be in for an inflation surprise. Oh. That inflation would fall quicker than we expect because of stuff that Isabella is doing in Germany, right? Because of the fact that food prices and energy prices are falling backwards, okay? And because of the fact that there is a recession predicted in most countries, particularly the United Kingdom, right? So if they all come together and inflation falls back, what we might find is that this is the year that inflation went away, Ooh. okay? Went away. And what I mean by that is if you add in, for example, the Chinese opening up of their economy, yeah. and if Chinese production is not ratcheted up but is kind of cranked up to a level which would be normal, i.e. Mm. they're not sending their people home, they're not locking their people up for COVID, then, of course, what you find is the extraordinary suppression of prices across the board, coming from the Chinese manufacturing sector. So if you take it, that this is, we're going out on a limb here. Mm. This is very unpopular. Ooh. If you take it, <laughs> in the, it Matt, if you take it. it, right, 2023, I think could well be on the inflation front, the year of positive surprises. 
Not a bad way to end the year, Johnny Boy. Good man, Mark. There you let's, go. Let's keep an eye on that one, Let's keep we? an eye on that one. Impaled on your own forecast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to you later. Well, it's that time of the year again. It is Patreon time. You know, there are some benighted, fantastic people out there, John, who actually pay us for this gig. I know, and I'm genuinely, eternally grateful to. But you know why they pay us? Not only do you get ad-free, lots of people don't like the ads, Yeah. but more importantly, you get to ask me questions every week. You get my Trinity courses. You get the audio of the Trinity courses. You get the visual of the Trinity yeah. courses. You get the book list of the Trinity courses. The notes. You get the notes. You get the books. You get the whole shebang. So if you want a really proper, deeply, as they say, immersive experience <laughs> of the Dave McWilliams yeah. podcast, sign up now in December for your annual membership on Patreon. You'll get a 15% discount if you sign up before 1st of January. So, you know what? You know those people who listen to this show and you think, what will I get them for a present? There you go. Get Dave McWilliams for a present. <laughs> Dave McWilliams on a plate. On a plate. <laughs> so it is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Happy Christmas.